In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I promise I am not trying to be ironic, but imagine for a moment if 2% of the population of the whole world suddenly disappeared without a warning and without a trace. That happens to be the storyline of a series that came out several years ago, which I speak about with a certain apprehension because there's plenty of parts of it where my wife and I are going, ah, now we've got to fast forward through that part. Yep, no, 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 that one, that one too. But it was called The Leftovers. And it genuinely was a moment in which, it's very set in a contemporary frame, in which 2% of the population just disappears. And everybody has to grapple with the loss, with the confusion, what do we do? And in that sense, it's kind of like a, a left behind the secular version. But if you have a series like that, there's no way you can avoid the religious imagery and the themes. You just can't. And they don't, fortunately. In fact, there's a montage on the very first episode of the final season that actually has a historical referent to it. Raise your hand if you remember from your U.S. history about the church community known as the Millerites. Anybody? One or two of you. It's a real thing. The Millerites were those that led and were followed under the influence of a lay preacher by the name of William Miller, who based upon his long-standing reflection on the book of Daniel had concluded that Jesus would return sometime between 1843 and 1844. So, save the date. And you know what people did? The Millerites did. And the, the montage at the very first episode of that final season documents without a single word of dialogue. Go back to that last slide there. This Millerite church community who are all being told that they're gonna, Jesus will be back around 1843. And the, the, the montage showcases a small family. Mom, dad, kid, red-haired, right? And they hear about it and they're enthused about that. And so then you see them selling all their belongings and the night that they think it's going to happen, they don their white robes and they ascend the ladder to the roof of their home and they wait. And they think by the morning, they'll be gone. And then the morning light shows and the confusion on their faces appears and they descend the ladder and they look at their pastor and he goes, I got it. And, you know, he gets more revelation and then he gets onto his blockboard in the middle of the church service and erases the date that he had and puts up a new date. And then, meanwhile, the, the townspeople who kind of look at them like they're odd birds, they start to taunt and jeer at them, and, and the taunts and the jeers kind of weigh heavily upon the faces of this young family. But another night comes, another date comes, and they ascend the ladder again. They don their robes, they wait, and nothing. And by the end of it, the, the church community has dwindled, and even the marriage has begun to splinter. And all the while, there's no dialogue in that montage. There's just one song underneath it. Larry Norman's I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Some of you know that song. And that moment is not just a pot shot on the, on the pace of the showrunners against Christians. It has a historical referent. That moment in time in 1844 was called, according to Wikipedia, the Great Disappointment. People heard... People hoped, people wondered, people waited, people ascended. And they 
descended each morning. And at this point, you're going, <laughs> well, pastor, where are you going with this? Am I at the wrong church? Why, why do I lead in with that somewhat dispiriting early six-minute montage from a show about 2% of the population disappearing? If you're just joining us for the last four weeks, we've been listening to a very short prophetic book known as the book of Haggai. And the reason we've listened to him is because he speaks into a somewhat similar circumstance. A nation that has been panting after God, who has been in exile for no, no fewer than six or seven decades, has been allowed to return home and begin to be rebuilding their lives together. And in rebuilding their lives, they meet all sorts of obstacles, most notably the obstacles within their own hearts. And we've been listening to that because in some ways it has an analogy for us. We are considering the possibility of trying to rebuild our common lives together. But we're not saying rebuild, friends, simply so that we can feel busy. You know, when you get lost, the, the Boy Scout handbook says everybody, keep everybody busy, right? Don't, don't let them freak out. Don't let them think, get lost in their head. The, the rebuilding process is not just so that you and I have something to do. It's because we believe we're led by a story. That history is going somewhere and that there's a point to this. But I don't need to tell you this, friends. Life is full of disappointment. And you are not immune to that, even if you are gathering in this room today to praise Jesus. And the question that should be on all of our mind at some point is, what happens when the great disappointment of any number of kinds tempts us to be swallowed up by it? What, what then? We're going to listen to the very end of Haggai today. Four verses. And we're going to try to make heads or tails of it. And by, by the time we're through... We're going to hear about two promises that I think lead us to think about two patterns, which when we consider those, I think will raise in yours and my mind two very legitimate questions. The answers to which I think offer us one very clear directive. Two promises that evidence two patterns that lead to two legit questions that I think might offer us one clear directive. It's going to go fast. It's only four verses. You've got to keep up. So can you stand? We're in Haggai chapter 2. We'll start in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel. Governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the curious word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You <laughs> can sit, yeah. <clears throat> All right. There it goes, and there it ends. What do we do with that? If you've been following along, you realize that each one of these four little sermons that Haggai has to offer, they all begin with a date. So it's kind of like 
Jean-Luc Picard, Stardate 4734.6. Except this one is, if you know the Hebrew calendar, this is from December 16th, 520 B.C. So you know what this is? This is an Advent sermon. It is the arrival that he is speaking of, of something big. That Israel, Israel, though it is, is this, has felt for a very long time this very tiny and vulnerable nation, like a, like a canary among hawks, like a, like a small boat in a raging sea, like, like App State at Alabama. Though, though Israel has felt like a minority among minorities, has felt like a plaything in a Game of Thrones, a pawn in a geopolitical, chaotic world, though Israel has felt like that something is coming, something big is on the horizon that they did not expect. And therefore, there are two promises that Haggai has for this Israel, this remnant. And the first one is this. Not only is something coming, what is coming is this, that everything that opposes Israel is going to come to an end. That those who, who again, play with Israel and who think they have the world on a string, they're going to be taken down. They're going to be taken out. Verse 21 I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, Haggai says to Zerubbabel. That all of these foreign nations who have intimidated and been imperialistic and annexed land to their heart's content, they're going to get their cage rattled. Rattled. And twice you hear the word kingdoms and nations overthrown. You hear about those strength be destroyed. You hear about horses and riders being thrown down. In other words, what's going on here is not some sort of small-scale operation. It is not going to happen in a corner. This promise has widespread implications. That's the first promise that Haggai is making to Israel. Something's coming. And it's going to go down, and it's, that opposition is going to fall. But now there's a second promise. And that second promise has to do with to whom it is addressed. And in this case, it's Zerubbabel. Verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord, I'll take you, my servant, the son of Shealtel, and I'll make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. All right, who's Zerubbabel again? He's the son and grandson of kings. And yet he was appointed governor of Judah by a foreign king. He's, he's appointed by a Persian king to be the one to kind of round up Israel and kind of, you know, take role. Everybody here? Everybody here? Who's got a buddy? Buddy check? Buddy check. We're all going home. Zerubbabel is appointed to be that guy to lead them home and to begin the rebuilding effort. But in as much as that kind of feels like an administrative um, effort on, on the part of how he's come to be in that role... The Lord speaks of him, first of all, as one who's been chosen. Not just one who has utility, but as one who has been set apart, designated. 
That's what the word chosen means. It's not just an ordinary word. Not everybody is spoken of as chosen. He is. And at the same time, that promise is, Zerubbabel, you're going to be my signet ring. Here's a picture of a signet ring, an Egyptian signet ring, an artifact. It was a ring that if you wore it, it represented authority. Kings would use it and they would put their stamp on official documents from the, the wax impressment of the signet ring. In Genesis 41, what does Pharaoh do? He takes off his signet ring and he places it upon the ring of Joseph. Why? Because he's setting Joseph over all of his land, over all of his granaries, to operate in his stead, to have authority that he has been bestowed upon by the one who is greater than him. The Lord is saying to Zerubbabel, you will act in my name. You will be my signet ring. I will place it upon you. And thirdly, to Zerubbabel, you will be chosen. You will be a signet ring. But you will also not rule for your own good. You will not be a dictator that loves to have power. You will not be a tyrant that seeks to wield that authority for your own purposes. You will be a servant. And that word there for servant is not typically ascribed to just anyone. It's typically ascribed to kings. Zerubbabel is no king, but he will be thought of as one like a king for God to call him a servant. He will act humbly. That's the promises. And you know what happens? Haggai ends. And we go, where's the rest of it? Who, who ripped out the pit? What's up with that? I heard a, a theologian say recently, not every single scripture is written to you, but it is written for you. And the question is, so what's that for us? How do we find this text that has a, a very certain time stamp to it? How do we find something that's timeless? How does it apply? I've told you about the two promises. But whenever you read scripture, you also should ask yourself the question, how do these promises in some way reflect a pattern in God? It's a really scary question that you ever put to your kids or, or if you're a teacher to your students. What are patterns you see in your parents? You know, tell us about something about them that's just sort of like you saw that coming a mile away because it's just kind of what they do. It's their thing. That's the pattern. Here's, here's, I've shared with you two promises that are very time bound, but what do they say about two patterns in God? With each promise, I think there's a pattern that we have to grapple with that I think has a certain relevance for how we work through the passage. And the first one is this. Whatever God is doing in that moment, it speaks to this pattern in him. That God's purposes for the world are comprehensive and often subversive. Don't worry, we'll define my terms here. What do I mean by comprehensive? You use words like heaven and earth, kingdoms and dominions and thrones and horses and riders. Um, comprehensive means there's no limit to the scope of his intention. As I said, this was not planning to be happening in a quarter. Haggai uses words that are, are too sweeping that um, you think he's going to leave out. That's just going to happen in this little itty-bitty place. No. There are broad and far-reaching intentions behind these purposes. And, and the reason I say it's a pattern in God is because what's happening here in Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, is not unique. And, and by that I mean this. Look, the Lord 
according to the biblical storyline, starts with a small tribe, the family of Abraham. But his intentions, his sights are set on the whole world. He speaks and begins with a tribe, but God of Abraham is not a tribal deity. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 48, or Genesis 28, you hear the Lord say, In all, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. His purposes for the world have no limit. That scope is comprehensive. In our pluralistic world, it's a probably good bet that if you start acknowledging, implying, acting as if where you come from by way of faith has implications for the whole world, that you're probably going to get a little pushback that, that they'll probably say, maybe not with words, um, could you keep that to yourself? Do you mind being private? And we get where that comes from. And we understand, you know, a little kernel of nobility that's wrapped up in that. And yet, if we are true to our understanding of what this means, it's like, I, 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 I can't. It's not designed to live in a private setting. It has far-reaching implications for the whole of the earth, for the whole of me, for the whole of you. The pattern in God is that his, his purposes are comprehensive. At the same time, though, here's a word for you. Subversive sounds, sounds very 007, subversive. What, sub, what, am I, what am I mean by subversive? Um, think of the word mine. You know, a mine that's an explosive mine. You, you bury it, and, and when it detonates, it, it is out to weaken and destabilize the enemy. It is, it is hidden, but it, but it acts to overthrow. It acts to, to undercut, to, to literally... To do that. That's why we call it to undermine something is to act subversively. When I, when I was in college, I'm not sure if it's true or if it's legendary, but the Rice University Band out of Houston, Texas, uh, when, when fields were still made of real grass, the Rice University Band would go to every place and they would mock. I, I was in the University of Texas Band and they would mock us for our orange polyester. right? But when they went to Texas Christian University one time, they, they show up and they, and they do their formation and they spell out the word rice in the middle of the grass field. And at some point along the way, people began to notice that everybody in the band starts to shake their legs a little bit. Everybody, while they're in that formation. And we're all like, that's weird. What is that? Some sort of ritual? Well, three weeks later, what's happened? On the grass field, they now have a competing grass that has all grown up and it all says rice across Texas Christian University's football field. They had been there on the field and they shook their legs. They dropped the seed, boom. They exploited a weakness in the system and found a way to leave their mark. Ha! When I say that the Lord acts subversively, if you were listening closely there, not only did you hear words about overthrow and stand down and turn around and, and destroy the strength, you also heard about when the horse and rider will be thrown down and the brother will die at the hands of another brother's sword. In other words, the way in which the Lord works, it begins to exploit and expose the internal contradictions of the powers that reign and they begin to crack up and find those internal contradictions and it falls apart in that way. Um, you watch football any week and sometimes they will take the camera up to the press box where the, you know, the offensive coordinators are working. What are those guys doing? Are they, are they looking on their phones? No, they're looking down at the defense 
and they're looking for the weaknesses in the defense and then calling down to the field and trying to exploit the weakness. They're trying to act subversively within the system. When the lieutenant goes to Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars and says, we have detected their strategy and there is a danger. Do you want to leave? And he goes, what? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. What's happened? Luke and his friends have exposed a weakness and they've come to exploit it. They've come to subvert it. The way in which the Lord works is to actually identify the weaknesses within the system that is opposed to them and exploit it and expose it such that it begins to fight against one another. And I promise all of this is going to have a point. But the pattern that we see in God is that he acts both comprehensively and subversively. That God, as God, exposes a weaknesses in everybody's system. Look, I don't know who this person is on Twitter this week. I don't even know if I can pronounce his name, his Twitter handle. We have that? But he wrote that this week, like out of nowhere. I'm on the brink of converting to Christianity. Oh, all right. I wrote to him. At some point, somewhere in his system that he had come to rely on for so long, he had begun to see the cracks in that system and something had been able to work subversively within his world. Now, I don't know where he is now. I sent him the testimony of Paul Kingsnorth recently. Just say, hey man, there's somebody that's just ahead of you up on the horizon. You might want to listen to him too. It's how God works. It's a pattern. He acts comprehensively. He acts subversively. And the second pattern we see in God is what we see in what he does through Cerebable. Yeah, God's purposes are, are often comprehensive and often subversive, but they are also often tied to those he sets aside who will act as a representative for him with utmost humility and servitude. Moses Abraham, Deborah, Ruth, Rahab. Name them. And at different places along their ways and to varying degrees in, in the course of their storyline, they demonstrate being servants, being set apart, being representatives. It's the way it works. He sets them aside. God sometimes works on his own, and he can, but at other times, for some reason, he, he taps people to act in his stead. That's his pattern. And you all might listen to that and go, well, that's nice. I'm, I'm glad for that. So what? Good, I'm glad you asked. Because inasmuch as you've heard about two promises and, and how those point to maybe so sort of patterns in the Lord, I, I think they probably raise in you at least two very legitimate questions. And the first is this. Okay, Zerubbabel is allegedly part of the plan, but what happened to Zerubbabel? Because um, apart from his cameo appearances in Ezra and the book of Zechariah, that's it. Not much. So what happened? Where'd he go? What happens to Israel after this season in which Haggai is writing? Um, the Greeks sweep in under Alexander the Great, and for about almost 400 years of uninterrupted rule, the Greeks hold sway over Israel. And then, new kid on the block, we call them the Romans, they sweep in about 63 BC, and they're occupying there for a good long while. So, Zerubbabel, what happened to you? And also, what happened to the shaking? There's a legitimate question that you might ask in your mind is, uh, what, what about the promise to Zerubbabel? 
I mean, talk about a great disappointment. What's going on there? I'm going to tell you. Remember uh, early last summer we were listening to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13? And, and one of the things he says in his sort of ode to love that is as memorable um, as it is succinct is that uh, he says this. I know in part and I prophesy in part. And right now we see through a glass darkly, but then, then face to face. I mean, what he sees he shares, but he doesn't see it all. And I think what is true of Paul is also true of Haggai. He sees through a glass darkly. He knows in part, he prophesies in part. And he certainly points to the person of Zerubbabel of having a part in God's promises for the world. But what he doesn't see is that there's some connection between him and somebody else that we might know. His name is Jesus, and in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, in his genealogy, you see, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Oh, there he is. One other place. Haggai sees Zerubbabel having a place in this grand purpose. What he doesn't realize is that it's not so much to Zerubbabel himself as it is to Zerubbabel's heir. Zerubbabel's lord. And you might see that and go, oh, great, this is why they send him to seminary. Fantastic. He finds those connections between the Old and New Testament. Isn't that neat? Jesus pulls down his album from the shelf. And look, they're in the album. There's Grandpa Zerubbabel. So that first question about Zerubbabel, that might be nice, and whatever my answer to that to you satisfies you, great, but there's the bigger question. What about, even if Jesus is, is the greater fulfillment of what is intended for Zerubbabel, tell me again, when that great shaking happened? When, when did the, the overthrowing of stout powers and strengths and, and, and conquering? I mean, aren't, aren't we just back to the leftovers, standing on the top of the roof, donned in our white robes, waiting for him to come to his conquering, only to see the morning light come and dust descend and the disappointment bear on our face? What about that? <laughs> what about that? If you are looking up, waiting and wondering when the heavens and earth will shake and when the Lord through Jesus, will do his conquering work. If you are looking up, may I humbly suggest that you instead look in the rearview mirror of history and then to look all around you. There are evidences. There are things more than merely hints and suggestions that have an answer to your reasonable, legitimate question. I have mentioned this name to you before. His name is Tom Holland. He is not the guy that plays Spider-Man. He is a historian. He goes to church every week, but he's an atheist. Because as he studies history, he knows that inasmuch as you and I think that so much of what we have in our culture was inevitable, he's out to tell us through what he knows of history, that's not true. Kids, this afternoon, I have a little experiment for you. I'd like you to go home, and if your parents keep their food in the pantry or in whatever shelf that is, I'd like you to go home and like you to open those doors and like you to just stare for a while. Look at all the food. And there might be part of you that thinks, I, I guess just the food just is there by itself. I, I, I guess it just arrived there on its own. Say that out loud, and then look at your parents. And let me know how that goes. Tell, tell me what you learn when you look at the full pantry and you see it stocked, hopefully with good things that are healthy things, and, 
And then if you think to yourself, I guess this just is inevitable. That's just, that pantry's just going to be stocked. And then look at your parents and they say, no, it isn't. Somebody had to put it there and somebody had to work in order to put it there. Friends, students and adults alike, you and I are heirs. We are beneficiaries of things that we thought were inevitable, but they are not. Let me give you some examples. Where in the world did you ever come up with the idea of somebody having dignity? Who told you that you had a worth and a value in yourself that had nothing to do with your name, your pedigree, your degree, where you're from, what you've done? Who told you that you have value even if you have squandered it? Who told you that? It wasn't the Epic of Gilgamesh. It wasn't Norse mythology, Odin and Thor. They didn't tell you that, on the contrary. It wasn't Darwin. Who told you that you had value and dignity? Genesis did. Genesis did. Because you're made in the image of God. It came from somewhere. It didn't just naturally occur. The, the, the spaghetti sauce didn't just naturally appear. Neither did dignity. What about concern for the weakest, the vulnerable, the poor? Where did that come from? It didn't come from the caste system in some Eastern cultures. In a lot of Enlightenment cultures, it would say that's the refuse that needs to be you know, dwindled. They need to be put out of commission and not allowed to reproduce and just be you know, disappeared or a nuisance. Who told you that the poor have value? I'll tell you who did. The scripture did. In a world in which men too often allowed, in many respects, their physical dominance to justify the subjection and disrespect of women, who told you that in husbands' and wives' relationships that those bodies belong to each other? As much as a husband's body belongs to a wife as a wife's to her husband, who told you that? It wasn't Aristotle. It was Paul. Tell me that God hasn't conquered already. Tell me that certain dominions and powers and, 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 and ways of thinking haven't already been subverted. And in a world that loves revenge, that loves to do the pile on, who told you that forgiveness was a virtue? That it was a calling? I'll tell you who did it. It was Jesus. And that's why in that book by Tom Holland, he says, you are heirs of a revolution. Heirs of a revolution that all believes that God died on a cross. Let me bring that really high-sounding abstraction down to really, here's cookie jar shelf. Here we go. Ready? I got to play creepy dad this week at the high school girls gathering. I was creepy dad. I wasn't there long, but I got to play creepy dad. I show up. And I had an impromptu question for the ladies. Didn't prepare them. And I asked them this question. First of all, anybody in your school, you see any bullying going on in your school? Hands go up. Next question. Why is bullying wrong? The answers that you would expect would come out. Well, that's mean. Okay. Why? Well, it hurts people. True. And so, why is that wrong? 
Well, it makes them feel bad. I know, but why is that wrong? Well, it, it makes me feel bad when I make somebody feel bad. Okay, that's great, but here's the problem. What happens when it no longer feels bad to make somebody else feel bad? Just go on Instagram and Twitter. People love it all the time, every day. And at some point said, oh, you're the pastor, so does this have something to do with God? <laughs> That's what I want to throw my phone. <laughs> Don't tell me what you think you want me to hear. Tell me what you think. But they get it. And I'm not picking on you, ladies. Your, your parents would probably give the same answer. I, would pro- I, am, I am thinking I would give the same answer too. Why is it wrong? Because at some point you have to come to this question. Why is it wrong? Because those who I might bully and demean, they don't belong to them. They don't belong to me. They belong to God because they're made in his image. In the same way, you don't mess with grandma's china. It's hers and she cherishes it. You don't mess with somebody like that because they are made in his image. You want to talk about subverting the way people think. Ask them, why is bullying wrong? And what happens when you give up on the idea that people are made in God's image? Then anything is possible. And I want to just read you a very brief quote from another atheist who acknowledges that he knows that the things that he most loves and values are coming under suspicion and he wonders if they're going to even be sustained. I don't know how to pronounce his name. His name is uh, George Skialaba. And he said this, Perseverance in virtue will sometimes require self-sacrifice. And self-sacrifice seems to require some transcendental justification or motivation of which the most common and perhaps the most logical is belief in the existence of God. Can we be good for long without God? And there's the quick of my discomfort. The suspicion, powerfully and plausibly, albeit tactfully and tentatively expressed, that the ideals I most prize are at bottom inadequate. I know, thick, wordy. What does he mean is this. The things that he loves, like dignity and human rights and kindness, if you kick God off the playground, then those things can't hold. And if the only thing that's keeping you from being a bully is that you don't like the way it makes you feel, then what happens when it no longer feels bad to make others feel bad? Where did those feelings, where did the ideas come from? Friends, they came from Jesus. So please, please, are you sure he hasn't already conquered? Oh yeah, there's work to do. No doubt, a ton. He has not sat on his hands. He's not sat on his hands. And that's the leads me to the one place in which he's done his greatest work. The one place that I think is the, the linchpin for all of it. What happens in your school, what happens in your country, what happens in your world, what happens in your doctor's office. I think it has everything to do with the one place that's actually at the headwaters of all those other places that have power and strength and dominion. I read a play last month that I would love to stage here. Three people, that's all you need. I'll play a part. It's written by a guy named Vicio, and it's called Yvonne and Adolf, The Last Man in Hell. It's an imaginary conversation between Adolf Hitler and Ivan Dostoevsky from, uh, Ivan Karamazov from Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. And, and one person at one point says, this is what is true of heaven. Heaven is full of people with nothing to prove. 
Heaven is full of people with nothing to prove. Have you ever asked yourself how much of your life has been devoted to trying to prove something? To your parents? To your teachers? To a girlfriend or a boyfriend? To yourself? You ever thought about how much of your life has been motivated with trying to prove something you're not even sure what it is? You ever think about maybe how that impulse is still at work in you now? Do you realize how much of human history is written as a consequence of peoples and nations trying to prove something? And what the effort to prove something is all about is to prove to you that you are okay. Beloved, if you're in this room today, then Jesus has a word for you. You are not okay. But the Lord, through his Son, loves you anyway. And when you come to believe that, oh, you might go through all sorts of tests and be motivated by to, to do good work and to act with excellence and to do things wisely and to, and to demonstrate aptitude and all of those things. You can, you can still commit yourself in that way, but there is a qualitative difference in how you strive when you are, when you are finally freed from trying to prove something. The Lord Jesus, by dying for you, was there to say to you, you are not okay, and there was never anything you could do to prove that you were. And so he has done for you what you could not do yourself, and he has proven himself worthy of bowing before him that you might be okay with the Father through what he has done through the Son, through the power of the Spirit. That's the gospel. And when you no longer have anything to prove, you know what happens? Then you feel like you got nothing to lose. And you don't care about risking and looking like a fool and being crazily generous and being seen as one of those benighted, bigoted people that, that actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It'll be okay. When you got nothing to prove, you got nothing to lose. And so in answer to those two questions, what about Zerubbabel and what about the shaking? I hope that my answers then lead us to one clear directive. Haggai, in the first chapter, said it's time to build up. It's time to build up the people and be built up by the people of God for your good, for the good of this world. Build up. And then in chapter 2, he said it's time to bear up with the strength that God supplies and being reminded that he comes to you in peace and with his peace. And last week, we felt like that if we're going to build, there is no building without fessing up, of being very honest about our frailties and the things we're lying about and concealing. But this week, here at the end, after telling us to build up and bear up and fess up, I think he's telling us to line up. To line up behind the one who has no parallel as one being chosen, who came to represent the Lord because he was the Lord, and who humbled himself even to the point of a cross. So friends, rather than waiting to be raptured out with great respect to my friends who hold to that doctrine, 
Instead, why don't you realize that you have been readied for this world and redeemed for it? Rather than wear the taunts and the jeers of people who do not believe you, do not, without, rather than letting those taunts wear heavily on your face, why don't you invite them over for dinner? And, and rather than merely wring your hands at all the things that you find to be absent of mercy and of kindness and of justice and of love, did you realize that even in your small story, with even your modest life, there are ways to subvert those patterns and pressures and reigning things and ideologies just with your life, like he did with his strength. Next week, we're going to start listening to the Gospel of Mark with one simple question. What does it mean to follow him? Here we pass the baton between Haggai and Mark and say, let's line up and let's learn how to follow. Let's pray. Father, what now? Uh, where do we go from here? How do we love each other well? How do we confess? How do we love our enemies? How do we find the strength that is strength from you? How do we persist when many days and even probably tomorrow we'll feel numb, losing the plot? Thank you that you've come for us. Thank you that there is a strength for us and a kindness for us that has absolutely nothing to do with our worthiness to receive it. Thank you that you've given us Jesus. Help us to see him and to know what it means to walk behind him and with him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thomas McKenzie was an Anglican pastor in Nashville. And last month on his first day of sabbatical, he drove his daughter to school in Texas and they had a car crash and both died in it. And one of the practices of his parish was at the end of every service, he asked everyone in the room to do one thing if they can. That some of their first words would be to somebody that they don't know. And I know that's maybe an ask, and maybe not be anybody you don't know. But if that's true, I wonder as we close that maybe some of your first words can be to somebody that you don't know. We're here for one another, and especially for those that know no one. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. You're dismissed.